Hi, this is Scott Wilkinson, host of Home Theater Geeks. In episode 62, I talk with Rob Sabin, Home Theater Magazine's new editor, about all things audio-video. So stay tuned. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Home Theater Geeks is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Home Theater Geeks with Scott Wilkinson, recorded April 18th, 2011, episode 62, Home Theater's new editor. This episode of Home Theater Geeks is brought to you by Netflix. Watch thousands of TV episodes and movies streamed to your PC, Mac, or TV instantly. Plus, get DVDs by mail in about one business day. For your free 30-day trial, go to netflix.com slash twit. Hi there, Scott Wilkinson here with ultimateavmag.com and hometheater.com. This week's guest geek is Rob Sabin, the new editor of Home Theater Magazine and uh, a new colleague of mine. Hey, Rob, welcome to the show. How you doing, Scott? Doing great. Thanks so much for being here. And uh, we've got a lot to talk about uh, in your new position as the editor of Home Theater Magazine and the website. Before we get to that, I want to make sure that those who are tuned into the live video stream at live.twit.tv or logged into the chat room at irc.twit.tv can post questions for Rob, and I'll pass on as many as I can. So, Rob, uh, if I'm not mistaken, you live at the Jersey Shore, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm in Jersey. <laughs> Seen Snooky lately? Yeah, no, actually, you know, we're all very embarrassed about that whole, uh, that whole show. <laughs> Why is that? Oh, you know, well, they actually kind of imported all those folks from Staten Island for the most part, so they're really what? not even fully reflective of uh, the Jersey Shore scene anyway. But, uh, oh, man. No, it's, it's actually, uh, the Jersey Shore is a wonderful place to live and uh, just a, a, a fantastic area. So uh, uh, we like to, uh, to promote it as much as we can in a good way. <laughs> and I guess that show has brought it into uh, national attention anyway, huh? Uh, yeah, at the very least, uh, you know, it's, it's, I, I guess that's one step up from having Jersey be known as the, you know, the place next to Newark Airport, you know, that... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> pollutes, uh, you know, the air. Elizabeth, New Jersey is known for that. But uh... Right, right. <clears throat> well, um, I'd love to, uh, to share with our listeners a little bit of your background, uh, how you became interested in AV. Uh, how, how, did that, how did that all start? Were you like most well, of us uh, being a very young, young guy and kind of going, oh, I like this stuff? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I think, I, as you know, most of the people, most of our colleagues out in the uh, consumer electronics press are people who started with this as a hobby and somehow or another managed to turn it into a real uh, career. And I'm no different from that. I started out when I was in my early teens. I was actually building various types of Heath kits and uh, wiring up circuits. And uh, probably as I reached my mid-teens, I'll never forget my, my parents had a console in the living room that had a stereo system built right into it. That was the day when you had a when you had a hi-fi. It was a piece of furniture. Right. And, uh, right? And uh, yeah. they had to, they decided they were going to turn that cabinet into a uh, into a dresser for my sister and <laughs> pulled out of it a Harman Kardon A300 series tube amplifier. Wow. Uh, and it, yeah, an integrated amp, which I actually still own today. It's, uh, <laughs> it's 
storage <laughs> right now. It needs some restoration. So if anybody knows anyone, but uh, yeah, that amp was amazing. It was uh, this tiny little tube amplifier. I think it had it produced maybe all of twelve or thirteen watts a channel. Uh, I, got, I got a couple of speakers for it, and I'll still never forget just how big and luscious and and rich that image was. It just really, really sounded great, and I was hooked. That was it, you know, and it all went from there. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, I ended up studying electronics a little bit in school. I, end, I have a two-year uh, technical degree in electronics um, and then kind of segued out of that and, and got into journalism. And uh, it's, it's been that way for the last 25 years or so. Yeah, you and I have known each other a very long time. We've been on many trips together and uh, seen each other at CES all the time and other trade shows. So uh, I'm sure glad to have you on board with, uh, with my company and our, our group now. Uh, but before well, you got here... What other, uh, I know you've been to some other publications. Uh, give us a, oh, sure. a little bit of that. Oh, sure. Well, the, the history kind of when I started out, when I finally got my first opportunity to work in, uh, in the consumer electronics press, I had a good friend who was working at a graphic arts agency that was at the time setting type for one of the high-end audio magazines that's really still around today, the Absolute Sound. Uh, they were based out on Long Island where I was living at the time, and uh, I ended up, uh, they knew that I was interested in, in hi-fi. I was one of those audiophiles at the time who could pretty much tell you the specifications on every pioneer receiver but really didn't know much about high-end audio mm -hmm. and that was that ended up being I ended up getting a job there as an editorial assistant and it was my first exposure to high-end audio great 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 place to uh, develop a good ear and um, from there, I went on to a number of other publications. I worked in the electronics trades for a while, which I thought was, a, think was a very interesting and good experience to learn how the, the business side of the electronics business works. Uh, but eventually ended up at Stereo Review, at Home Theater Magazine for a little while, maybe about 10 or 12 years ago. So if there's any old readers, you might actually remember me, or at least the byline <laughs> from those days. Kind of comes full uh, circle, doesn't it? Exactly. And then most recently, uh, from the editorial world, I was the executive editor at uh, Sound and Vision magazine. Uh, up until about three years ago, I was running the test program there. Um, mm -hmm. And then since then, I've uh, been running my own custom install business, which has been yet another, I think, very positive experience and something yeah. that I bring now to, to the new job. So. Yeah, I, I find that fascinating also, and, and I think very valuable because you've got You've got experience uh, in the trenches, as it were, you know, actually out there, if I'm not mistaken, you were actually putting panels on walls and running cables through walls and so on. Uh, so you've got a different, little bit different perspective than certainly I do. I've never actually worked as an installer. Mm -hmm. uh, so you must have some interesting, uh, interesting tales to tell from that experience. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, uh, the thing was, and, and when I started the business, of course, the economy had just really taken a downturn. <laughs> and, you know, well, well, why not, you know? Oh, I mean, man. You, know, you, start, you can only get better, right, if you're starting from zero. So, yeah, uh, I guess that's true. <laughs> so that's, that's kind of the way I looked at it. But, uh, you know, when I, uh, I basically went after every job that I could. And because of a lot of the connections that I had in the industry uh, prior to that from my editorial days, I ended up getting work over a very wide swath of area. And uh, uh, consequently, in a lot of different, with a lot of different types of customers, I worked with, you know, essentially entry-level customers who really just didn't need much more than a, a panel and maybe a sound bar, all the way up to people who were putting in uh, fairly high-end home theaters. And uh, when you 
when you do get that kind of broad experience, you, you know, you really get a chance to see how people just live with these things and mm -hmm. how they integrate electronics into their lives. And that's what I think is so, so nice about that experience to bring out of the home theater job. Uh, because, you know, we tend to sit in our little ivory towers. We go to our press events. We hear some amazing demos, needless to say, when we go out to the shows. And, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and, and that's one of the great, great things about the job is just being around and exposed to the equipment all the time. But um, to go into someone's home and to see them using a multi-room audio system or to hear them tell you about their experience with their family, with the home theater that you help create for them is, is both very gratifying and, and also very interesting to see how they work with things. I think one of the, and I know we're going to talk a little bit today, I hope, about some of the issues and things that are facing the industry, but I think yeah, one absolutely. of the... Sure. One of the fascinating things uh, I think that I gained from that experience is just how really, really critical that control aspect is, that, that mm -hmm. ability to operate all of this equipment, how complex unbelievably complex all this gear is and we take it for granted we spend all our time with it so it most of the time doesn't phase us to pick up the remote control of an AV receiver uh, right. but the average person really can't handle it and you, you really gain a, an appreciation for what it means to make something simple for someone to use and, and that I think is a great great theme to take into the pages of home theater as we go forward exactly uh, certainly things have gotten a lot more complex as the years have gone on it uh, used to be, you know, you had one remote, you had your TV remote, and then you added your receiver and maybe an external sound system to the TV. Okay, that's two remotes. Then you had a, a VHS player, or now then a DVD player, now a Blu-ray player, you got a remote for that. Pretty soon you got all these remotes on your coffee table, uh, and really what you want to end up doing is hopefully programming a universal remote. I assume you did that for some of your clients as well. Oh, I, I, I almost insisted on with virtually every client uh, to do it. And, and in fact, you know, the minimum you can probably spend at the end of the day on, on a decent universal remote for a, a system is, is probably, you know, between $350 and $500 when you get done with programming up what has to be done. And uh, I can remember many conversations with clients who basically said, do I really have to spend this and I my response to that would be I would much rather that we strip down every other aspect of the system and make sure that you have a fantastic push button one touch remote control where you know you can hit a button that says watch movie and everything happens and and my thinking was not only that that's real that that to me is their experience and that's also my referral too in in the industry because when somebody comes to their home and they show them that system and they say, look what I can do, and they hit that button on that touchscreen remote and everything lights up and does exactly what it's supposed to do, uh, it turned out to be the, uh, the best referral that I could get. So. Right, exactly. Um, <laughs> a reverb Mike in the chat room says, 30 bucks at Walmart. Now, certainly you can get universal remotes for 30 bucks. Absolutely. Uh, but are they really going to do the job? Well, here's the deal, and, and this is the thing about remote controls. Um, you really have to get a remote that will do macros. And uh, for those who aren't familiar with that term, a macro is a sequence of commands that allows you to hit one button and make your television switch to the right input, make your AV receiver switch to the right input, uh, perhaps uh, uh, turn on the, the play function for your DVD player, and 
have everything operate perfectly operational, and then of course have a volume uh, rocker and uh, and or a channel rocker if you're watching TV that properly corresponds to whatever component you're working with. And uh, uh, the the trick there is that a thirty dollar remote will allow you if you're very good at kind of keeping track of what mode it's in at any given time to control all your different components but to hit one button in what we would call an activity-based remote and have it go to watch movie listen to music listen to multi-room audio whatever it is that you need to do that's the beauty of that and uh, mm -hmm. you know the the least expensive remotes that will do that are are maybe about a hundred dollars you know a harmony remote control and and we're all very fond of those remotes um, you can are you, you, get are you, you like you have you used the harmony have you uh, specified that into clients homes before yeah I have and and the reason for that is that uh, it really depends on the client because you can go up from there you know probably the most popular uh, remotes that are being used these days are are uh, in the custom install world are universal remote control uh, URC mm -hmm. um, and they are very powerful and very good remotes they there's also harmony which gets used and there's also RTI and then of course you go up from there into some of the more sophisticated control systems uh, with touch panels and and handhelds such as Crestron and and AMX but um, and control 4 of course right. but um, uh, the harmony remotes are particularly cost-effective and in particular, when you're dealing with entry-level clients who, the, for whom the concept of a, of a, uh, of a $500 remote or a $300 remote is, is already over the top, I found that in most cases, a lot of those harmonies were very, very effective if you know how to program them properly. And in 99% of the time, they, they worked uh, just as well. So, mm -hmm. I found know. that harmony remotes uh, myself, they're my favorite because they're actually much easier to program in my experience, than uh, URC or, or the other remotes, which require a, a computer program, and you hook it up to your computer, and you have to program the macros and so on. With the Harmony, it's so much nicer to be able to say, here's a list of equipment I've got. Here's what they do. In other words, when I watch TV, I control the volume on my AV receiver, and I change the channel on, on my satellite box. And then when I'm watching a movie, I, uh, <clears throat> the source is my Blu-ray player, and I change uh, tracks on that, and I change the volume on the AV receiver, and then, and that's all done online, and then the harm, and then the uh, website downloads all the appropriate macros to the remote. So uh, I found that to be quite a bit easier to use than than the URC. But of course, uh, uh, if you're used to it and you've done it many times, it really isn't any problem for an installer such as yourself. Well, that's right. Now, the big difference there is is in the power of the remote and what you can do with it. Um, you know, you mentioned, of course, and, and I happen to that I happen to like that about the Harmony remotes as well. The fact that they are very, very intuitive to programming and the basic setup is very good. And there's actually quite a bit of sophistication in that software, um, where if you kind of know how to do it, there's some awfully fancy tricks that you can do with a Harmony remote. Um, the platforms for something like a, a URC remote or an RTI remote. Uh, are a little bit more powerful. They give you a little bit more flexibility, and mm. there are times when it's helpful to have that. The training, and I've trained for both the URC and RTI remotes to be able to program them. It does require a learning curve uh, to to get up there, and it's uh, not nearly as as intuitive and easy as uh, as Harmony. And certainly for the for the do-it-yourselfer, um, those brands are not usually readily available. Maybe URC to right. some extent, but right. Right. Um, but yeah, as you say, you've been through the training. These companies offer training 
uh, to installers and dealers and so on. And so they, they do make it as easy as possible for, for them to then offer those products and make them work well. And as you say, I do agree with you that uh, some of those remotes do have a greater amount of flexibility and power uh, to do certain things that you might want to do under certain circumstances. Yeah, exactly. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Have you ever done uh, anything with uh, iPad universal remote or iPhone? You uh, know, that's now were, an up and coming thing. It, well, it's it's almost an explosion. They were just just barely coming into vogue uh, and becoming available for a lot of the products that I was selling, or some of the products that I was selling, uh, as I sort of segued out and and into my new position. Um, I, I think that. What you're talking about there is one of the very, very big trends in the industry that we're going to be talking about a lot in the pages of the magazine going forward. Um, I think that that revolution that we're seeing now where virtually every device uh, that's, that's coming out of any sophistication has got some kind of a remote app, either for iPad, iPhone, or uh, in some cases Android is now sort of uh, on a roll as well. Right. Um, those those things have a tremendous opportunity to really address this ease of use issue that I was referring to a minute ago. So I'm really, really pumped up about uh, the developments in that area. The iPad uh, is something that gave the custom install community great trepidation when it first came about. Uh, oh, yeah? Well, yeah, you know, you have uh, the sophistication and the control that I've been talking about, that ease of use, a lot of that is GUI-based. It's graphic user interface on some kind of a touchscreen panel, typically. That's mm. where you really, truly get your ease of use. Uh, and, and, you know, we had our, our listener before talking about the $30 remote control. And when I talk about a $300 remote control <laughs> uh, from, from, from Harmony, I'm talking about a touchscreen model uh, that really creates a great deal of ease of use in part because the buttons change as you need them to change and uh, makes life a lot easier for the user. Now, uh, I understand, uh, I do understand that, that point, but I just want to interject here that the problem I have with universal, with um, touchscreen remotes, such as the $300 Harmony, it's the 1100, I believe, or something like an iPad or an iPhone, is you, you don't have physical buttons, tactile buttons. You have to take your um, you have to take your eyes off the screen to look at this relatively bright thing to figure out what you want to do. Uh, don't you find that to be a problem? Well, you're right about that. And in fact, the best remotes actually have a mix of hard buttons that for the most commonly used functions uh, and then uh, touchscreen buttons for and virtual buttons for the things that you need to dig in more deeply for. So having the right combination of things, my favorite Harmony remote actually is, is either the 9 or, or the, the Harmony 1, which is essentially the same, the 900 rather, which is essentially the same remote, the 900 being the... the uh, the um, RF version that doesn't require oh. line, of, line of sight. But right. um, that particular remote, for example, has a great deal of hard buttons on it. It's a WAN-style remote that happens to have a touchscreen window on it. And uh, I think that is a very fair thing to say. Uh, a lot of people find it very inconvenient, and particularly in a dark room, you don't necessarily want that sort of jarring lighting up of, of, uh, of a giant screen in front of you. Um, right. you. You know, we were talking about the iPad before, and, and maybe to some extent that is one of the limitations or potential limitations of of the iPad as a remote control, mm -hmm. uh, and, you, and even the iPhone, because you don't have those hard buttons to, to work with. But um, right. the ability to intuitively navigate all of the 
important functions, or at least the ones that you as a user feel are important, um, is, is really an amazing thing. And that's, that's where I think we're, we're going to see a revolution. Mm-hmm. Do you, my, Reverb Mike in the chat room asks if, uh, if you know of any good remote apps for the iPad 2 specifically. Oh, you know what? Um, no, not at the moment. I have not personally tried one that is dedicated, specifically dedicated for being universal remote. There is one, there's one out right now, and I'm drawing a blank on the name for it. I know that mm. we covered it in our publication just a couple of months back. Um, but um, I'd like to do a, uh, an extensive survey of the universal remote programs and see what really, really works best. Most of the apps that are out there right now are not really designed necessarily for using across a variety of, of different components, but in fact are dedicated to individual or specific products. And mm. uh, that's, you know, those tend to be, be uh, product-centric, of course. So. Or manufacturer-centric, at least. Well, well, at the very least, that's right. That's yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, but, well, you, but we're seeing it. Yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. Sorry. I'm, I'm sorry, go right ahead. I was just going to say, we're seeing more and more of them. I uh, saw the new uh, Denon receivers this year, and they have their app all ready to go uh, for that product as well. So, uh, and it's, you know, I think, I think it's going to, we're going to start to see them with a lot, especially a lot of the sophisticated uh, types of uh, receiver products. So. Mm -hmm. uh, you were speaking that uh, a bit earlier that you wanted to do a, a big piece in the magazine about uh, remotes and universal remotes. I think that's a great idea. Uh, what else have you got planned for the magazine and the website? What are your thoughts about what kind of coverage and how you're going to approach the whole area of home theater, both online and in print, going forward? Mm -hmm. Well, that's 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 a pretty wide open question. There's a lot, of, <laughs> you know. Well, and I'm thinking about it. Believe me, there's a lot well, of. I'm there sure are you are. Yeah, there, there are a number of things uh, that I think, there, there's two or three questions there in, in all of that. First of all, what are the trends right now? Where do I see a lot of the coverage being devoted to? Um, you know, we have a number of things right now that if, if not really issues that are facing the home theater enthusiasts, certainly trends and things that are, are really at top of mind. We've got 3D and it's really the question of 2, 3D or not 3D these days <laughs> and, and whether or not, you know, it really is meaningful to you. And, and people are passionate about that. We get mail from from readers who basically say, why are you wasting our time with this? <laughs> you know, we do every television review now, we have a section on 2D performance and 3D performance. And uh, the, the nature of that, of course, is that the sets are in fact, you know, the ones that we're reviewing are, are the top of the line TVs. And uh, uh, certainly they have the 3D functionality and we're gonna report on it. But uh, this, this, is really what I've, this is what I've always said uh, in terms of coverage, people ask me the same question. Why are you mm -hmm. spending so much time covering 3D? And I say, well, because there's a lot to cover. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. love it or hate it, uh, now I believe more than 50% of, certainly more than 50% of Sony TVs and probably more than 50% of many other manufacturers' TVs have 3D capability. And when we review those TVs, we really need to cover that and see how well it works. Oh, we do, and it's and and it's trickling down more and more. Uh, certainly, the product lines this year we're seeing it much uh, lower in the product line and uh, across a broader range of of of, uh, of SKUs. But um, you know, one of the issues there 
that we're also facing is is this whole question of passive versus versus active 3D. A huge and question. Yes, it, it really is. And and uh, you know what we're finding is that manufacturers are are starting to fall on one side or the other. You know, and uh, at the moment you've got Vizio and LG who are and and Toshiba actually who are shepherding mm -hmm. a new passive 3D system into homes and uh, everybody else is still doing active and there's a real question about what consumers want really and uh, then within that subset we as the enthusiasts have to decide what we want so for example right now we just finished uh, reviewing the first Vizio uh, TV the first TV that has passive 3D technology that's a Vizio set that hit the market a little while ago and we're looking at the moment at the new LG television and mm -hmm. uh, uh, we're trying to get some sense of of whether this is, you know, better or worse than than the active uh, technology. Um, so the question of 3D and and you know what's it what's its use, what's its longevity, and and uh, and how good or bad is it is something that we're going to continue to cover in the magazine. Certainly from a product standpoint, and maybe from a feature standpoint. Um, I think streaming. You know, streaming content is a revolution in that right now. And, and I'm, for us enthusiasts, uh, I'm very concerned about this sort of rush to mediocrity that, uh, that we run the risk of, of, of doing here with uh, everybody jumping on the streaming bandwagon before really the pipeline is big enough to allow us to have the kind of quality and, and if not quantity of, uh, mm -hmm. of movies that we want, so we don't want to see any sort any sort of premature uh, death of of, uh, of Blu-ray or uh, any of the, the physical media until we know that you know we've we've got our, our precious uh, pixels and bits in just the right places. So um, <laughs> true yeah. enough. Uh, however, I I maintain and I always have that there is a place for streaming and for Blu-ray. I, I do not believe that Blu-ray is going to go away, much as some people say. You know, they say, oh, you know, Blu-ray is the last physical format. It's going to disappear, and, and we're only going to have streaming. Uh, I really don't think that's true, and the reason I don't think it's true is we don't yet have the commonly available bandwidth to allow the same quality as Blu-ray to come streaming down the pipe. On the other hand, that is a far more convenient way, in many cases, to get content. So there's a trade-off there. And uh, I think there's a place for both, really, in, mm -hmm. in the modern home theater. Well, I, 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 would per, uh, I would absolutely agree with you, Scott. I, I think that the, the big concern is that, um, you know, the manufacturers have a tendency to, to create products and, and the content providers have a tendency to gravitate to those places where they see the volume. And, um, you know, my fear is always that, uh, and, and, you know, Blu-ray, theoretically, we should always have that as our archival, you know, sort of, sort of format there. But, the reference um, standard. Oh, absolutely. And there's no question, you know, it's funny, you, you know, people don't realize just how, just how much better Blu-ray really is uh, than, than even standard, you know, high-definition broadcasts that are coming across uh, mm -hmm. uh, their, their cable box or the satellite these days, even Fios, you know. Uh, it's yeah. really a step. It's really a step above, and let's not even talk about the sound quality. So, um, you know, I, I don't want to see it, it go away. But but my fear, and I think the fear of some of our readers, is that um, with everybody sort of pushing hard and 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 making those streaming options more and more readily available, you know, I, I had the very interesting experience last month of 
of having two things happen within a couple of days of each other that, that was just sort of a little bit profound for me. The first thing was that I had an, uh, a nice opportunity to go see um, in, a, uh, in a theater a digital screening of the brand new recently restored uh, film of Taxi Driver, you know, which was... Oh, know, yeah, I heard about that. Mm-hmm. Yes, this the seminal 1976 or 77, you know, Scorsese film with De Niro. Right. And the, the restoration was just so stunning. It was so beautiful that the thought of watching that on any kind of a streaming format versus the Blu-ray that, w- that, that just came out is, right. is uh, you know, was, was just ridiculous. You, you'd never even consider it. A day or two later, I happened to go over to my local Blockbuster um, because I was one of those people who continued to frequent my local store. I liked going <laughs> to the Blockbuster. I liked picking up whatever Blu-rays I wanted and, and well, being able to browse. And, and it was closed, basically. You know, the signs were up and they were just selling out the inventory. It was one of those 600 or so stores that, that got shuttered in this recent uh, acquisition. Right. And, uh, you know, it, it really drove home for me how things have changed. And... Many of the customer, custom install customers that I had who I would not consider to be videophiles in any way and, and, and enthusiasts were all on Netflix. They were all starting to uh, use Pandora uh, once I had exposed them to it. A lot of the time I would be the first person who brought something in. They, they had been, this is the kind of, a, a lot of families had been getting their Netflix over their Wii console mm-hmm. and we're happy now to have it in a Blu-ray player that could preserve the quality a little bit better. Um, and then they were also being exposed for the first time to uh, things like uh, internet radio and some of the other services that are out there, as well as some of the higher quality services like Voodoo. And um, they took to it. I could see that even non-enthusiasts, not, not geeky people who were, mm. were very enthused by this idea of not having to go anywhere and having the video store in their home. So, uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The having yeah. the video store in your home, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. That's, well, that's exactly right. So, yeah, so those kinds of, those, those sorts of things just make me worry about how quickly, you know, we're going to be able, how easily it's going to be to get discs and, and how quickly they might potentially go away. So we'll, we'll cover right. that too going forward. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> Speaking of which, uh, I must uh, take a moment here, uh, how appropriate could it be, really, uh, to take a moment to <clears throat> thank the sponsor for this episode, none other than Netflix.com. And there you go. Um, you know, it lets you watch thousands of TV episodes and movies stream to your PC or Mac or TV directly. And as we've been talking, there are a lot of TVs and now Blu-ray players that have uh, the ability to acquire Netflix directly. See, what I really like about Netflix is that it, we were talking before about having the choice. You can either, uh, you either might want the ultimate quality of uh, Blu-ray, or which you can get from Netflix in one business day by just right. by mail, you know, or you can get it streaming instantly uh, at, at perhaps slightly lower quality, but the convenience is there to to stream it directly and um interestingly uh you can get a free 30-day trial now at netflix going to netflix.com slash twit um you know you can get these movies directly to your home saves time money hassle we were talking before it, it becomes the video store in your home you don't have to go out and do anything or go anywhere and you can watch uh thousands of tv episodes and movies 
uh, stream directly to, to your home theater system, including your Xbox 360, uh, PS3, or Nintendo Wii, as you were mentioning before. Yeah. Uh, you know, so uh, it really does offer you the best of both worlds, really. Uh, it, depending on whether you want qu quality or convenience, you have them both, really, with Netflix. Um, yeah, it's a great service. It, re it really is, and it's available on... It, what's nice is that it's available on most platforms. Um, you know, you can't get everything on your Sony TV or on your Samsung TV or on your Vizio TV. Uh, they, they all have partnerships, but most of them have partnerships with Netflix. So that really does make it fairly ubiquitous. Um, I do want to mention one quick uh, uh, Netflix streaming pick of the week. Uh, because I was looking around on Netflix uh, to see what, was, what were their latest editions. And the one that really got me was Futurama Into the Wild Green Yonder. Have you seen that? <laughs> no, I haven't. It's great. Have you seen, have you seen Futurama, the TV show? No, I'm not familiar with it. Oh, okay. It's done by, uh, it was created by Matt Granig, the same guy who did The Simpsons. Oh, gotcha, and yeah. It's a great, it's a great animated series. It didn't last very long. It only lasted a few seasons. But in addition to the half-hour episodes, they did several full movie-length uh, pieces. One of them is Into the Wild Green Yonder, kind of a send-up of the whole green uh, movement and uh, environmental concerns and so on. It stars uh, Billy West and Katie Segal, the woman who was the wife on uh, Married with Children. And she does a great voice uh, on, on that show. And uh, so I really do recommend that. Um, it is on Blu-ray, but here's the thing. Particularly with animation, it probably doesn't make as much difference because the, it's animated and there's a lot of very solid colors. It's not a lot of serious detail. So um, I haven't seen the stream yet. I intend to go take a look at it. Uh, when, I, when I saw it today as I was looking around, I went, oh, yeah, i got to check that out because I'll bet you it looks pretty darn good. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so, um, so you can instantly watch this movie or choose from thousands of TV, TV episodes and other movies when you register for a free, free trial membership. Go to netflix.com slash twit. Be sure to sign up for your free trial at netflix.com slash twit. So... Um, so the other thing that's going on in, um, in the chat room here, <laughs> as it always does whenever we talk about 3D, is 3D, who cares? What about 4K? Ah, yeah. That's what we but, really want. And it seems to me that, it, that that's pretty universal. 3D is a big controversy, right? Some people love it. Some people hate it. Some people don't care one way or the other. It's, it, it's here to stay, I think. I don't think it's going to leave as it did before. It's just going to become a feature of these TVs and Blu-ray players, just like streaming is. But 4K, everybody wants. Well, absolutely. And what you're really talking about there, and you know, you, we were talking about you know, what kinds of things are we going to see in the magazine. Uh, ultimately, something like streaming and 3D, these are part-time features. When you, uh, I think what's really of interest to, to the readers is, is the core picture and sound quality and what we can do to improve that. How do we improve our systems? And, and ultimately, what are the new trends in gear that are going to get us closer to that? And mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I'm very, very excited about higher resolution formats. I'd like to see if we can get some real content that can, you know, really, see, this really is the show problem. it off. This is the problem. We have 3D right? content, not very much yet, but it is growing. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. um, but how do we get 4K content into the home? We have it in the movie theater now. We have the Sony 4K digital projector in which we can, and we can actually go to the movies, some theaters, and see actual 4K content. Yep. But we can't at home yet. Uh, and even if we had 4K displays, we don't have any way to deliver real 4K content. We don't have a disc format for physical media. We don't have any way really to stream 4K, much less high def. We do have a little bit of that, but mm -hmm. it's going to be a while till we actually see 4K in the home, don't you think? Well, absolutely. And, and primarily for the reason that you say, you know, it would not shock or surprise me to see if they could uh, start really driving down the cost of 4K projection. Um, you know, we, we see it now and it's primarily a digital cinema phenomena, but uh, I, I can't see any reason why they won't be able to get get that down to an affordable price over a period of time. But that delivery mechanism that you talk about, Scott, is, is really, that's an issue. I don't know how you get that, that stuff in. On the other hand, you know, I've seen some pretty good upscaling of 2K to things like 4K and beyond. Mm. And if, if the scaling is done well, uh, you know, you can take full advantage of all the detail that's in the projection display and, and still get a fantastic experience. You know, putting all of that aside, though, um, and I, you know, I know you've had a chance to look at some of the very late generation uh, uh, projectors, even some of the budget projectors. They, they really are stunning. And, uh, no doubt. You know, it's, it's almost hard unless you have a very, very large screen. And I've, I've been in my custom install business, uh, you know, I've seen some awfully big theaters, for, uh, home theaters. But uh, for the typical home theater, uh, it's it's hard to imagine it getting much better if you have a good you know more or less <laughs> state of the art type projector. Uh, you know that, which doesn't that necessarily is a, mean expensive either. Yeah, no, that's a very good point, and um, uh, it it reminds me. Last week I was at the NAB show, National Association of Broadcasters, with Leo Laporte <laughs> and Team Twit, and mm -hmm. um, we saw a number of 4K displays there. Uh, and the one that <laughs> struck me the most was in the JVC booth. They were showing footage that they had shot on their 4K camera on a 4K flat panel. It was actually from IBM that measured something like 20 inches. It was tiny. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, what's the point? Well, the point is I could get up to it and put my eyeball almost touching the screen and I still couldn't see the pixels. Well, that's right. I mean, that's like a pinpoint. And, uh, you know, but, but when you get up to the bigger screen sizes, that obviously is the advantage of that. And, uh, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I think we're going to see them eventually. So uh, that, and I think, you know, I, I'd like to think that we'll continue to get better and better sound quality as well. Mm. Um, although, you know, at this point in time, you've got essentially straight PCM and, and lossless formats. And uh, uh, it was a big step up, obviously, from Dolby Digital to those formats. And it's, it's actually, you can really hear the difference. So Sure, sure. Um, uh, my friend uh, SoCal Ray Jr. in the chat room asks, what are your thoughts on audio and video calibration? I know that you're an ISF video calibrator, trained sure, calibrator. Sure, sure. Well, a couple, a couple of interesting thoughts about that. The first thing is, is that you, you got to calibrate your TV. Uh, and uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to call on a professional calibrator. But at the very, very least, uh, I think certainly anyone who fancies themselves an enthusiast and honestly, really any consumer will benefit from just properly putting a TV into its appropriate presets. Um, 
the things that you gain when you do a professional calibration, things like the, the, the uh, grayscale, being able to get that grayscale perfectly even and knowing that you've got perfect color balance, knowing that your, your primaries have been uh, adjusted to where you've got uh, just the right color space. Um, and then the amount of time that you spend both using test patterns and, um, and, and using your eyes to tune contrast black level uh, peak whites and uh, and gamma all those things that we do uh, it really can make a tremendous difference and it can make a tr big even bigger difference on a projection screen mm -hmm. um, so uh, I, I wouldn't dismiss it I would say that at the very very least everybody needs to at least get their television into the the cinema mode or get their TV into uh, whatever the best mode in the set is it's usually that cinema or movie it's mode and then cinema or right? movie yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And then, and then, you know, do a little bit of tuning and tweaking. That's a little dark for some people. You can always punch it up a little bit. But if you start there, uh, on a lot of the newer TVs, uh, we have found that they are very, very close to accurate. Not perfect by any means, and some of them are more off than others. But uh, if you don't feel the need to bring in a professional calibrator and spend that kind of money on a flat panel, then um, you can certainly at least start to get it get it close. Now, you get audio, it closer. Exactly right. Close. Yeah, exactly. And and you know what? If you have a good eye, you can you can tell when a television's uh, grayscale is is too blue or the color temperature is too blue. You can see it. There's not too much you can do without the special instruments, but uh, it is a very very important thing, and it's what makes. It what may, it's what makes video look more film-like. And, yeah, uh, and more natural, out, more, more like you're looking out a window. Exactly. And, you know, even just knowing enough to turn off the, uh, the interpolation modes, and, and that's another controversial area. Ah, uh, yes. Some, some people love it and some people don't. But uh, if you want, you know, if you, if you want to honor the uh, artistic intent of, of a film that you're watching, you really don't want it to look like a soap opera. So uh, This is, this is a very good point. Uh, you're going to talk about audio in just a second, but I have to sure. respond. I just have to jump in here about uh, the interpolation mode and make sure everyone understands that on oh, an sure. LCD TV, these, you're, you're now seeing LCD TVs with uh, a, a specification that says 120 hertz or 240 hertz. And what that means is that they are per, uh, displaying each frame of the video signal several times. And one thing that they can do, these TVs, is they can actually create a new frame in between the existing frames and what that really does is it makes the motion sharper. So if there's an object in motion, car driving down the street or a football flying through the air or whatever, uh, it looks sharper when you turn that interpolation on. Um, however, it introduces a problem, an artifact called the soap opera effect. It makes it look like it was shot on video or like it was shot on a soap opera stage. Most videophiles really object to this very much. And Rob, you're exactly right that it is not what the director intended. Um, yeah. I, I personally, I don't mind it. I'm able to look past that soap opera effect and enjoy the sharper motion, but I realize mm -hmm. I'm seriously in the minority on this. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and that's the thing. It really is a matter of personal taste. And, uh, uh, you know, so, uh, there is an almost hyper-realism uh, that you see to the picture when when these modes are turned on, and uh, you know it, it's almost fascinating because it brings 
objects into and people into such relief that you you can almost tell you can look at something and and almost know and understand and see you can it's almost like you can see the lighting uh coming in from off the frame that's how mm. how it, it i don't want to say exaggerates uh the the highlights uh in those images but uh it it actually creates a sense of 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 things almost jumping off the screen not to use that 3d analogy but um, <laughs> uh, even the non 3d and, and, tvs yeah. right and and gives it gives it a sharp almost realistic edge so so it's you know people it's it's just a matter of of taste and and what you like so ultimately it is uh, got a couple questions in the chat room here about uh, mitsubishi what do we think about mitsubishi uh, dlp rear projection tvs the only rear projection tv left on the market they are. They're the only ones left. So you know the thing about the thing about rear projection sets, and and I've always been a big fan of rear projection uh, DLP. Uh, I was uh, really because it's it's in terms of bang for the buck mm -hmm. to get the largest screen size you want. You still can't get up into the even with a flat panel. Uh, you still can't get up into those really big screen sizes. You either have to go with a front projector or you have to have a rear projector to make it happen. And uh, those right. sets Mitsubishi's are up to ninety two inches now. Yep, isn't that incredible? Now, to me, you know, the the reason to do that would be you just simply can't control the light in your room, and you have to be able to uh, to to do that when you have a a front projector, because at that point you're really in front. If you're making the room for for a set that big, you know, you've got to have a good reason to want to do a rear projector instead of a front projector these days. Um, right. But uh, right. cost, of course, is one of those issues. And then the other one is is the ability to control the light. But um, you know, uh, they make a terrific. Team. TV. They have pretty much gotten out of every other aspect of the business now. They announced recently that they were not going to compete anymore in the LCD market. That's and, right. Uh, yep. So, so this is their specialty. And, uh, you know, the difference between a flat panel and a, uh, a rear projector is that there's always the potential and I only say I, I say this reservedly. There's always the potential to get a, a sharper image on a direct view set, and uh, because with a projection, you you are in fact uh, going through some optical elements, and you're going you're using a mirror, and you're having all those those possibilities of of not having things be as perfectly crisp as you'd like. But if you look at the current generation of MITS projectors, they're really really good, mm -hmm. and. Uh, and if, if having something that hangs on the wall is not the most important thing in the world to you, it's, it's an excellent option if you want a really big screen size at a really good price. At a really good price, exactly. Yeah. A couple it. of people in the chat, uh, Jim in the chat room is asking if a 19-inch Vizio HDTV can be calibrated. I think the answer is yes, uh, but boy, a 19-incher, I mean, you wouldn't want to spend three or $400 having that professionally calibrated, would you? No, you wouldn't. And in fact, what really does happen is that if, if you do look at some of those smaller TVs, and although we don't look at them for the magazine, I had the opportunity to play with plenty of them uh, in my install business. Sure, um, like in the kitchen or even the bathroom yeah. in some cases. Kitchens, bathrooms, uh, you know, s sometimes a bedroom, although bedroom TVs can be an awful lot bigger than that. And, sure. you know, uh, some of those other secondary areas. But um, the, uh, the thing is you do, for the most part, end up with very limited controls over the video picture in smaller televisions. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I don't think it's anticipated that they're going to be used uh, by a serious enthusiast or anyone who's going to bother with, with that. There usually are modes. There are different 
preset modes in those sets, and selecting the right one is, is going to get you at least uh, a better picture on that. But uh, the kinds of controls that we typically need, either in a user menu or you'd have to presumably get into on a TV like that, you probably have to get into the service menus to be able to calibrate it. I, mm-hmm. I'm not sure it would be worth, it, worth the effort uh, with that no, size. I kind of don't think so. Uh, Raiden in the chat room asks, um, would like to know about all the different uh, HTV, HDTVs and the various large screen sizes. Uh, why do we still have letterbox and not full screen? Oh, well, that's uh, a really good, good question. So, it is a really good uh, question. Yeah. You know, right most, of the mo- most of the movies, uh, of course, that get shot uh, in film for the theaters are, in fact, not the precise aspect ratio of, a, of, of what is the HDTV standard of, of 16 by 9. You know, they are, they are wider films. And consequently, um, when you transfer them to any kind of a 16 by 9 widescreen, you're going to end up with those black bars. Um, now, to get around that, for example, uh, Vizio is preparing to release later this year some widescreen televisions. Yeah, we saw those that. at uh, CES, I think. Uh, we saw yep. them at CES and 2010, and then they kind of retreated from that, and now they're maybe coming back into it. So They're working on are, it. They're working on it. That's my mm-hmm. latest information. And, uh, you, know, and we cer- you will certainly get one in for review. We will uh, as soon as possible, right? Absolutely. No, the, 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 minute, the minute that it's available, we're going to be all over it. I think it's a great format. Um, you know, as Vizio explained to me, and I, I uh, had a chance to meet with uh, one of their representatives recently, uh, they're very excited because they see it as not only a way to help eliminate those bars and give you that sort of perfect cinematic experience when you're watching movies, but when you're watching regular 16 by 9 uh, high def, mm-hmm. you're left with a space to the right or the left. Of or the both. Image. I mean, basically, you have window box bars. You have black right. bars on the sides. Right. But, but one of the options that, that they anticipate is the ability to push that thing far, far right or far left and be able to use the space on the right for various types of internet-connected information, streaming activities, widgets, whatever. Ah, so all of a sudden, you're going to have... Isn't that a fa- fascinating idea to be able to, to watch a standard 16 by 9 high def image? I say standard, uh, watch a 16 by 9 high def image. Uh, and then all of a sudden, all these other features that now typically have to be overlaid with the picture get their own little space on the side. Um, now, you know, whether or not you want to watch TV that way is another question. <laughs> I personally but, don't. But I'm kind of old school in that regard. Um, And it does bring up an interesting point that I had thought of earlier that I wanted to just bring up regarding uh, iPads. And we were talking about iPads being universal controllers. But I also at NAB heard quite a few people talking about what they called the multi-screen experience. So you've got your main program on your TV. And then on your iPad or iPhone, you've got secondary information that you can uh, grab... uh, you know, the, the bio of the actor or the, what else the director has done or whatever. Um, and what you're saying here about this new Vizio um, wide, wide screen TV, it's actually called, it's actually, the ratio is 21 by 9, I believe. Uh, you could put some of that information up on the side of the screen without intruding on the main picture. That's right. And there's a place for it. You know, I, I don't think you necessarily want to watch a movie and have anything else going on at that time. But um, sports events, you know, it's a great opportunity to be able to uh, track either other games or various 
aspects of, of, of uh, the game you're watching uh, via some kind of an RSS feed or some kind of a, uh, an internet connection there um, mm-hmm. while, and, and have it right there while you're, while you're watching the game and not missing uh, even one pixel of it. So Yeah, yeah. No, that's uh, a great idea. Interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, before we run out of time, I did want to talk a little audio with you since we've sp- sure. spent most of the time here talking about video, which is great. Um, uh, Ray uh, asked earlier about audio calibration, and I, th- mm. I think you might have had something to say about that. So I didn't want to... Yeah, ab- absolutely. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, you know, I think that one of the, one of the things, and this is, this, this, there's nothing new about this. There's nothing earth-shattering. There's nothing uh, trend-setting about it. But ultimately, I think home theater enthusiasts continue to face the same uh, obstacles and impediments to getting great sound uh, that they always have. And a lot of it has to do with the room and the environment and having the equipment properly set up. And uh, certainly I'm excited by some of the new and continually, and continually evolving uh, algor- algorithms that are being used for room correction and room setup. Uh, but I think that one of the themes going forward that I'm going to be looking to do more features on and, and just provide more information on is how do you really, really extract the best sound and whether that is uh, very, uh, you know, calibrating your system properly and perhaps equalizing it using one of these uh, room setup systems like uh, Odyssey uh, mm-hmm. or for that matter, really treating your room and understanding and knowing uh, what kinds of uh, things to put in your room to help create an acoustic space that gives you the best shot at, at great sound and articulate dialogue. Uh, I, think this is, I think this is a very important point that is often uh, given short shrift, shall we say. Mm-hmm. And I look forward to your coverage of that particular subject, as well as the other ones you've talked about, uh, because I think it's great if people get a sense of making their room essentially another component in their system and optimizing it just as they would their receiver or whatever. Well, it's absolutely true. And most people don't realize that, that the room that you're in uh, is, is, it may have the most significant effect of any component that you have. You cannot fix a bad room uh, with better components. And uh, you can often extract more from lesser equipment if you've got a good room. Good and, point. Uh, uh, you know, and and getting the right uh, the right mix of uh, reflective, you know, absorptive and uh, and diffusive materials in the right places, uh, and then of course dealing with the bass, which is another huge challenge, and actually one of that is a very great interest to the readers. You know, in going getting into this position, I went through all the the reader mail and so many questions about subwoofers and setting up subs and which sub is the best and uh, everybody and where to wants place to it. Just get. Well, that's it, and 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 getting the best base is is probably the biggest challenge that almost everybody faces because it's so very room dependent, and uh, I think we need to do more coverage of that, and also cover a lot more subs as as standalone review products because uh, mm. that uh, there's great interest in the category. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and uh, then there's the question of how many speakers do you need? We've gone from five point oh, yeah. one now to seven point one. Uh, uh, DTS is talking about 11.1. Where will it stop? <laughs> really? Yeah, the, uh, you know, the, the, the jury is still out on, on just how many you really need. And uh, I'll tell you what, it, it goes all ways. I had the interesting experience of um, uh, talking with um, 
the uh, the uh, chief technologist at SRS uh, just a couple of days ago. Um, oh yeah, Alan wanted, Kramer. He's he's been a guest yes. on our on my podcast here. Uh, yep, and what a brilliant guy, and and oh, just man. such a such a fascinating job that he has because really you know so much of it is has to do with the science of hearing and and what do we know and what are we not doing properly right now? And uh, you know I had the experience uh, uh, of going to the SRS facility a little while ago and hearing a demo of some technology, some circle, uh, some, some 3D technology, uh, mm -hmm. cinema 3D technology that they're going to be coming out with soon. You'll start to see it in products probably next year. It was some of the best surround sound that I've ever heard, and they were able to produce it with two speakers uh, and uh, just completely blew me away. And it, it honestly threw, you know, threw into relief for me this, this question of how many speakers do we really need if we just know a lot about how people hear and can manipulate the sound in ways that makes makes gives us a convincing uh, surround field so um it, i think that's a question that we're going to delve into more and more but i would very much like to test some of these systems um and and see what really happens when you do 11 speakers you know <laughs> i mean the the srs demo is remarkable in that it really does give you, in many ways, better surround sound from two speakers than an actual 5.1 or 7.1 surround sound system. Yeah, and, and I, have to, I have to emphasize, we're not talking now about the kind of stuff that you see today from SRS that's, that's in uh, televisions, which does a decent job of kind of, you know, expanding the sound field a little bit. Uh, this is some brand new cutting edge stuff that we're going to write a little bit about in the magazine going forward. And uh, uh, it, it's, it's uh, the kind of thing where they are hoping to really revolutionize not only the way we listen in the home, but the way that uh, film and, and other video content is in fact made. And mm -hmm. uh, uh, that, that's going to be a very interesting development going forward. Very yeah, impressive it, stuff. It really is. It really is. Um, the other point I would make is one thing that I was impressed about with the um, SRS demo was it actually made things sound like, like they were a above you and below you to some extent, uh, which brings up the whole issue of a lot of people call 5.1 and 7.1 sur uh, surround sound, they call that 3D audio. And I never have because it's really still in a plane, a two-dimensional plane. And in order to get real, to call it real 3D, which would be appropriate to go along with all this 3D content that is now here and coming, is to have something actually speakers over your head or some sort of... Uh, uh, algorithm that makes it seem like sounds are actually overhead or down below. And so I'm really uh, very interested in following the SRS technology for that reason as well. Yeah, sure. I, I mean, we've got a ways to go, but uh, it, it's going to be interesting to see what they're able to, to pull off. And, uh, you know, one of the things about that SRS system is that if you, if you do add more speakers to it, they suggest, you know, you'll, you'll in essence get more resolution and more uh, uh, an enhanced experience. But um, what I heard with two speakers was, was very impressive. Yeah, yeah, quite remarkable. Well, um, it seems impossible, but we've come to the end of a very interesting hour. I want to thank you, Rob Sabin, new editor of Home Theater Magazine, for joining me on today's podcast. Well, thank you very, very much. It's been a lot of fun, Scott, and I, I look forward to doing it again. I know that uh, both of us share the same passion for all of the uh, 
equipment and and the interesting developments in the industry. So maybe we'll have a chance to talk about some of these things again going forward. You bet. You bet. I look forward to having you on as a guest again. Thanks so much. Of course, you can... Uh, you can read Rob's stuff uh, at hometheater.com, where, which is one of my online homes as well, uh, in addition to ultimateavmag.com. You can email me at scott at twit.tv, and you can follow me on Twitter at htgeekscott. Next week, I have two guest geeks scheduled, David Cole and DJ Roller of Next3D, developers of a fascinating new streaming 3D technology, which I saw at NAB, and uh, I'm really looking forward to talking with them on the show and bringing you some information about this fascinating technology, so I sure hope you'll join me. Until then, geek out!